Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. It's raining in Jerusalem. I'm driving to a place called the Shalom Hotel. It's a high-rise in the southwest corner of Jerusalem. One of those places that, in its heyday, was probably pretty nice. Today, it's a little weather-beaten. The menus and the carpets are a little out of date. The marble and the brass in the lobby doesn't quite polish the way it used to. On this trip, though, I came in November, it wasn't functioning as a hotel at all. Inside, the front desks were closed. So was the bar. The espresso machine at the bar is open to whomever wants to come and use it, though. Piles of trash bags full of laundry lay next to the bar, each one with a handwritten name tag scribbled on a scrap of paper and taped right on the plastic. When I say piles, I mean it. Dozens and dozens and dozens of bags piled one on top of the other. All around me, it's bedlam. There's kids on roller skates rolling around the room, kids drawing and coloring, kids playing games. A group of kids sit around one young woman who's wearing a long denim skirt and a headscarf, reading books. And then I spot a few men clustered near the elevators. They're all wearing kippahs, those little skull caps or yarmulkes. And when they spot me, it's just an absolute blur of handshakes and greetings. One of them, he isn't wearing a kippah. He's actually the hotel's owner, who leads our whole group to a dining room, where he's put out a massive spread of food. There, I meet Zion Lashem. His first name is spelled like Zion. He's a community leader for the group that's staying at the hotel right now. So my name is Zion. I live in the town of Neveh. Neveh is what's known as a mashav, and it's a community that sits right at the most southern, most western corner of the country. Its border is right up against Gaza to the west and Egypt to the south. As a mashav, it's kind of the mirror image to Kafar Aza, the kibbutz where we were in the last episode. Like a kibbutz, there's a sense of communal living and solidarity. But rather than the socialist principles at the heart of the kibbutz movement, a mashav is a religious community. A very conservative one at that. We've been evacuated from our town Monday, October, what is it? 10th, I guess, and we decided that we want to stay together. So we were looking for a place and a place big enough to accept us as a, as a community. So we're all together, we're about close to 1,200 people. So we're 150-something families, 1,200 people. You can do the math. I'll do the math for you. 150 families making up a community of 1,200 people means that there's almost 900 kids running around this hotel right now. Right, 8, 10, 12 children, families. And we were very lucky to find the Shalom Hotel who, uh, who right away took us in. And uh, I mean, they've been amazing ever since we were here. They're, any adjustments we need, any requests we have, if it's the food, if it's the timing, if it's, you can imagine. Neve is just one of many communities around the Gaza envelope that had to be evacuated after October the 7th. 
Almost 150,000 people in total were displaced into hotels like this one all over the country. And another 100,000 were evacuated from communities in the north because of fear of a second front war with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Hamas didn't attack Nevaeh on October the 7th, but not because it was well defended or because they were in some way prepared. Here's Lauren Clemensburg, an Israeli who works in the tourism industry and who connected me to this story. They were coming. They were on the roads. They were just a little bit farther south than, than the others. They were coming. But they just went a different direction. They would have walked that direction. They would have slaughtered all these people. Slaughtered them. Look at this. He points to a group of kids swinging from the brass handrail leading up to the dining room. It's hard to think about how vulnerable a community like this would have been if Hamas had turned south. And yet, it raises another question. Because here they are, building a community right on this border. Before October the 7th, rocket attacks from Hamas were a regular occurrence. Terror and hostage-taking has been part of this conflict almost since Israel declared independence in 1948. So, what are they doing here? Why would you move your family to a desert in the middle of nowhere on the border with Gaza, where Hamas has said for almost 40 years that their goal is to wipe you off the face of the earth? So we believe that, uh, that uh, the return of the Jewish people to Israel is part of the redemption of the world, a major part. Christianity Today, you're listening to Promised Land, a bulletin miniseries about Israel and Palestine. This isn't one story, but many conflicting stories that state claims on a land that Christians, Jews, and Muslims all call sacred. Today, episode two, we'll try to understand how a community like Neveh came to be in harm's way. We'll try to make sense of the Zionist story. How did the Jewish people understand their connection to the land? I went to several people and asked them that question. In the book of Genesis, uh, God approaches Abraham with a command, but also an incentive. This is Michael Oren. He's the former Israeli ambassador to the United States and former member of the Knesset. He's also a writer and historian. He's published a number of books of fiction and nonfiction, including Six Days of War, a deeply reported account of the Six-Day War from 1967. I spoke to him from his car as he was driving home from a funeral for an Israeli soldier who had died in Gaza. He says, you know, you're going to be different. You're going to cross over. But the, uh, the quid pro quo is, I'm going to give you a land. You're going to take yourself to that land. Genesis 12 is where this promise first appears. Verse 1 says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Then, in verse 6 and 7, it says, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. 
So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. The entire Bible is the story of the Jewish people's relationship with God and relationship with the land. And they are indivisible. If I'm speaking to a Christian audience, that is why Jesus was born in that land. That is why he was called a Jew, because a Jew in Hebrew is simply somebody who lives in Judea. Born in Bethlehem, he's a Judean. Um, he never heard the word Palestine. It wasn't invented for until 100 years after, until after his death. And that's the connection. If you look at just the names, what does Bethlehem mean? Bethlehem means house of bread. In Hebrew, uh, there's an Arab country that's not far from here called Jordan. What does Jordan mean? And it's an Arab country that has a Hebrew name. It means that what flows down. That's what Yahweh Ben means. Even you know, the Arabic place names here, behind them, you hear the Hebrew name. So clearly, the Jews are the indigenous people of this land. And the Jews never left the land. They weren't always the majority. Even in the 19th century, the largest single population in Jerusalem was the Jewish population. It wasn't the population. So, you know, all you do is take a little shovel and dig into the ground. And they will find evidence of the fact that Jews have lived in this land for over 3,000 years. Much of the plot of the Hebrew Bible is about the relationship between God, the people of Israel, and the land promised to them. For Abraham and the patriarchs, it was a promise they looked forward to. The Exodus is about an enslaved people being set free in order to see that promise fulfilled. Joshua is about conquering that land, and much of what follows is the drama of the people of Israel struggling and failing to live faithfully within it. At times, their faithfulness collapses, and they lose everything. Many of them are dragged off as captives when they're conquered by a foreign empire. And what they long for more than anything else is to come home. The first Zionist movement uh, can be found in the Psalms. This is Rabbi Yehiel Pupko, the rabbinic scholar at the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Chicago. When those who returned from Babylonia said, uh, Shir HaMalot, the song of ascents, B'Shuv Hashem et Shivat Zion, Hayinu Kicholmim. When God returned those who had been exiled from Zion, we were like dreamers. And the great question of Western civilization is this. Why didn't anybody say, after the Romans drove them out. If I forget the O Athens, let me forget my right hand. Where are the children today of majestic ancient Rome? Nobody said, if I forget the O Rome, let my right hand wither. The Jewish people are the only ancient people who, when they became extraterritorial, nevertheless maintained their sense of self. What happened to the Sumerians and the Akkadians? The Assyrians conquered them and assimilated them. No genocide in the ancient world. First you get conquered, then you're slaves, then you intermarry, and then you rule the country. The tension and the temptation for the people of God in the Hebrew Bible is always one of assimilation. Like Michael Oren said, it begins with God calling Abraham to abandon the gods of his fathers and to worship the one true God. That revelation is a burden, but it comes with the promise of a land and descendants as numerous as the stars to fill it. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, then, the temptation is to return to paganism, to return to the idols of Abraham's fathers, or to worship the gods of Israel's neighbors. And when they're unfaithful, they suffer. After they conquer the promised land, 
After they settle in it, the temptation remains, and they regularly stumble, intermarrying with Canaanites and worshipping their gods. Eventually, in the 6th century BC, the kingdom collapses and they're conquered by the Babylonians. Thousands of Israelites are taken into captivity, but the longing for home always re-emerges. If you grew up in the church, you heard these stories in Sunday school. And of course, in the church, these stories are often spiritualized and made into metaphors for faithfulness and perseverance. And for Christians, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But think about how many of these hero stories in the Bible are in some way about the connection between the people of God and the promised land, longing for it, fighting for it, protecting it, returning to it. Abraham, Moses in the Exodus, Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, David and Goliath, Solomon in the Temple, and then all the different stories of the exile and return. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra. The great poetry of the prophets is all about the loss and the hope of restoration for the land and the people of God. In other words, it's not just the land, but the promise of the land. The land is the place where the people of God can represent him before the world. That's at the heart of the story of the Jewish people. Here's Rabbi Pupko again. I once met a man who was a former member of the Chinese Politburo. He said, we have a lot of it in common. We are the two oldest civilizations in the world. I said, yeah, but there's one difference. You stayed at home. We didn't. (laughs) So Zionism, contemporary political Zionism that emerges in the second half of the 19th century is nothing more and nothing less than a continuation of the ancient Jewish longing to return home. In that sense, we have been returning home since the moment we left home. And in our minds, we had an onomasticon, a word map of the land of Israel. We integrated remembrance of Zion and Jerusalem in the land of Israel three times a day in our daily prayers, in our life cycle rituals of birth, marriage, and death, in every Sabbath, and in every one of our holidays. So that Jewishness is classically an indivisible amalgam of God, land, language, Torah, mitzvot, commandments, and familial peoplehood. It would take a much longer, much more thorough podcast to trace all the times the land of Israel changed hands in the past three millennia. So I'm not even going to try to be that comprehensive. But here's a few essential things to know if you want to understand the Zionist story. In the 6th century BC, Israel was conquered by the Babylonians. And when that happens, the temple is ruined. It's destroyed. And thousands of people are taken into exile. And then, 70 years later, the Persian emperor Cyrus, who had conquered the Babylonians, gave the Jews permission to go home and to rebuild. And they did. Nehemiah rebuilt the city walls, Ezra called the Jews back to their religious practices, and a governor named Zerubbabel oversaw the construction of a new temple. This one was far more modest than Solomon's. It was a lot poorer country at the time. But it was renovated and expanded by Herod the Great, 500 years later, in the first century BC. So by then the Persians are gone, the Romans are now in charge, and that temple stood through the days of Jesus Christ, all the way until AD 70, when the son of the Roman emperor, a military commander named Titus, put down a Jewish revolt and ordered the destruction of the temple. 
To this day in Rome, you can see the Arch of Titus. It's a monument that commemorates his victory in the Jews' humiliation. Now, about 60 years after that, there was another Jewish revolt, when the Emperor Hadrian announced his plans to build a Roman colony on the site of Jerusalem. This was known as the Bar Kokhba Revolt, and it led to the expulsion of Jews from the city of Jerusalem and most of Judea, though many remained in the surrounding areas and in Galilee. The area then was renamed Syria-Palestina, and this was an intentional insult to the Jews. Palestina was a reference to the Philistines, the Jews' ancient antagonists. Now, in time, the ban on Jews in Jerusalem was lifted, but initially they could only enter the city one day a year. It was a day called Tish B'Av, the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av. And on that day, Jews would gather at the most prominent remnant of the temple, the exposed Western Wall, a place they continue to gather to this day. Here's Timothy Dalrymple. He's the president of Christianity Today, and a few years back, he wrote and hosted a multi-part podcast on the history of Jerusalem. One of my favorite experiences, or maybe I should say one of the most powerful experiences that I've had in the old city of Jerusalem, we were coming in late at night, and so together with one of my colleagues, we went down to the Western Wall. And at night, the Western Wall Plaza is bathed in this kind of golden, golden light. And it, it, there is a, kind of the classic Jerusalem stone, uh, the golden stone there as well. And it's always a place of this kind of peculiar, beautiful religious intensity. Because you have people there day after day, all around the clock, who are going to pray and often praying very fervently. And when you're there with the dome, of the rock that's looming kind of above the Western Wall Plaza. And you know that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is close. I mean, it's like a five, 10 minute walk away. Real quick, that's the church that houses the historic locations of both the crucifixion and the empty tomb. We'll have a lot more to say about it on a future episode. Okay, back to Tim. I mean, it's easy to just believe that you're at this kind of golden heart of the, of the sacred universe. But I came in that night and people were lamenting and arm in arm swaying back and forth. And you know that there's that intensity of the Western Wall in general being the closest that that Jews are generally permitted to come to where the Holy of Holies would have stood. But what was happening that night was unlike anything that I had seen before. And so I began to ask some of the people who were there what's going on. And and I thought maybe, you know, in the midst of my travels, I had missed that there was some... um, some terrorist attack or there was, you know, some some global calamity had happened. And what they told me was, no, this is, it's the ninth of Av. And the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av is a day when they remember various tragedies in Jewish history. Recognition of the ninth of Av begins with the book of Joshua. So when the 12 spies return and everyone but Joshua and Caleb say, well, we shouldn't go into this land. Um, You know, this is the land of promise. This is the land that they've been working to get back to through all of their wilderness wanderings and entering it. And um, they're punished by God and told that their generation will not enter into the land. And Jewish Midrash, which is commentary on this, uh, quotes God is saying about this event, you cried before me pointlessly. I will fix this day for you as a, a day of crying for the generations. And so um, it, there is kind of that, the seamless between uh, the Jewish 
story reaching back into biblical times, but also reaching all the way forward into our own. Here's a short list of historical events that have taken place on the 9th of Av. And to be sure, some of these are according to tradition, but many of these are well-documented in history. In 586 BC, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The Romans destroyed the second temple in 70 AD, also on the 9th of Av. On the 9th of Av in 133 AD, Jewish rebels were butchered in the final battle at Batar. A year later, the Romans plowed over the Temple Mount on the 9th of Av. Jews were expelled from England on the 9th of Av in 1290, and they were expelled from Spain on the 9th of Av in 1492. In 1914, the First World War began on the 9th of Av, and then on the 9th of Av, 1942, a train took 60 carloads of Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto to the newly built death camp at Treblinka. It was the second deadliest death camp in the war. I highlight these stories because each one is a tragedy about the connection between the Jewish people and the Promised Land. The insecurity Jews felt for two millennia when they were displaced, or the suffering that befell them when other nations in the world determined that they no longer belonged. There's so much ritual built into Jewish life that's connected with the loss of the Promised Land or the destruction of the Temple. The Passover Seder ends each year with saying, next year in Jerusalem. And for much of history, that reflected the dream of returning to their homeland. Today, it reflects the solidarity of Jews around the globe with the state of Israel, the miracle of coming home. A familiar ritual of Jewish life for anyone who's attended or seen a movie or a television show with a Jewish wedding is the moment in the ceremony, usually right after the vows, when the groom or the bride and groom together take a glass, wrap it in cloth, and smash it. Since the Middle Ages, this was taken as a symbol of the destruction of the temple, a reminder of that loss and mourning amidst the celebration of life. To ask the Jewish people, what are you doing here? is to invoke not just history, not just religion or faith, but their defining story, the story that binds them to their ancestors, their God, and their fellow Jews around the world. It's a story of both tragedy and hopes fulfilled, and it's why despite the wars, the rockets, the neighboring armies, and threats like October 7th, that people like Zion the Lashem are building in the desert. We'll be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. 
They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. In 1921, the British Empire controlled almost a quarter of the world's land and population. That included territories stretching from Canada to Australia to British-mandated Palestine, which includes modern-day Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank. By the end of the Second World War, though, it was clear that the empire was unsustainable, and the British, with the help of the international community and the subjects of its empire, began the process of disengagement. They didn't just pack their bags and leave these places, though. They felt responsible to install a government and to transfer power. They wanted to help these countries avoid falling into chaos or into communist hands or devolving into civil wars. But there was rarely a smooth or perfect way to do this. One of the first was a territory where the indigenous people were divided by religion, hostile to one another, and hostile to British rule. I am, of course, talking about the partition of India into India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Momentous days as the Viceroy holds vital talks with the leaders to discuss the transfer of power to Indian hands. Early on the scene is Mr. Jinnah, leader of the Muslim League. As the thermometer blazes up to 112 degrees outside, water is sprayed upon the door curtain to keep the inner temperature down. This partitioning was hardly smooth sailing. About 14 million people were displaced as a result, with Hindus and Sikhs of the newly established Pakistan becoming refugees in India, and Muslims displaced from India becoming refugees in Pakistan. As many as 2 million people disappeared, died during the displacement, passing from one place to the other, and hundreds of thousands died in violence that broke out over the new borders. To this day, tensions remain over the region of Kashmir, which both nations claim. More news from troubled Kashmir, whose capital, Srinagar, is seen from one of the planes engaged in rushing Indian troops to the fighting areas. Over the snow-covered Himalayas, relays of transport planes have been flying in with men and arms to repel the invading tribesmen. Already, the rebel forces have left a trail of looted and burning villages in their wake, but the threat to the capital itself has now been averted. Tens of thousands of civilians have died in fighting over just the past few decades. I mention India and Pakistan because the Israel-Palestine conflict is often spoken of as some kind of outlier, an exception to the rest of the world stage, where Israel is a nation with artificial borders that were created by the British Empire or the United Nations, imposed on its indigenous people. In reality, there was a lot of this going on at the time. It's how we got the modern borders of Syria and Jordan, Myanmar and Sri Lanka, just to name a few. Some of these went relatively smoothly. 
Some, like India and Pakistan, remain contentious to this day. But few command the world's attention like Israel and Palestine. The British government first began to explore partition in 1937. This came a year after a violent Arab uprising, which was itself a reaction to British imperial rule and hostility towards the emigration of European Jews. The British established the Peel Commission to explore the possibility of withdrawal and partition, establishing a Jewish and an Arab state. And again, it's worth noting that this was prior to the Second World War. The proposal that resulted would have given about 20% of British Mandatory Palestine to a Jewish state, and about 72% to an Arab state. 8% of it, including Jerusalem and the Port of Jaffa, would have been an international zone that the British would have continued to oversee. Zionist leaders had mixed reactions to the proposals, with some, including a young leader named David Ben-Gurion, pushing to accept the plan as a foothold for securing the future of a Jewish state. Arab leaders rejected it entirely, from the outset. The idea of a Jewish state in Palestine was simply unacceptable. One particularly influential Arab nationalist leader at the time was the Mufti of Jerusalem, who said that the only acceptable future was a single Palestinian state with Jews living as a minority under Arab rule. When asked by the Peel Commission if a Palestinian state could assimilate the 400,000 Jews already living on the Holy Land, the Mufti said no. When asked what would happen to those Jews if such a state were to take over, the Mufti wouldn't answer. We must leave all this to the future, he said. Ultimately, the plan for partition was shelved until after the Second World War, when the United Nations would take it up again. Arab delegates declare a boycott as the final roll call has begun. Afghanistan? No. Argentina? Soviet Union? Yes. United Kingdom? Abstain. The United States? Yes. This was November 29, 1947, and the vote was for the partition of the British Mandate into an Arab state and a Jewish state. The proposal for partition was approved, and in Tel Aviv, people took to the streets to celebrate. But at the UN, the Arab delegations, along with Pakistan and India, stormed out. For Palestinian Arabs, and for the Arab world in general, the idea of a Jewish state in the Holy Land was still unacceptable. Six months later, it's May 14th, 1948, a new radio station called Kol Israel, the Voice of Israel, initiated their first broadcast from Tel Aviv. The voice you're listening to is David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, reading Israel's Declaration of Independence. The British mandate for Palestine would expire that night at midnight, and the very next day, military forces from Egypt, Transjordan, Iraq, and Syria would enter Palestine with the goal of overthrowing the Israelis and establishing a unitary Palestinian Arab state. The war lasted 10 months, during which more than 700,000 Palestinians fled their homes or were expelled by Israeli forces. When the war ended, Israel had gained control of a significant portion of the British Mandate. 
The West Bank was held by Transjordan, which is now modern-day Jordan, and Gaza was held by Egypt. Today, the world tells two very different stories about this war and its outcome. For Israelis and their allies, it's a war of independence, a war reclaiming their place in their ancestral homeland and declaring their right to exist as a people after the Holocaust. In this telling, Israel doesn't exist because of the Holocaust. Israel exists as a promise that the Holocaust would never happen again. For Palestinians, this war is inextricable from what is known as the Nakba, which is Arabic for the catastrophe, the displacement of 700,000 people. We'll come back to the Nakba next week, but for now, I actually want to wind back the clock a little further to the 19th century to talk about why, after 2,000 years, Zionists started coming back to the Holy Land in the first place. Here's Rabbi Popko again. Secular Zionism as a national liberation uh, movement uh, builds upon 2,000 years of deep Jewish religious messianic longing. Mm -hmm. However, lots of faithful Jews could not imagine this without the Messiah, the House of David. So what happens if I dare say God sends along a bunch of secularist Jews who don't keep kosher, who don't keep the Sabbath, but they are filled with such unconditional love for the Jewish people, and they know that the religious amongst the Jewish people are stubborn and still waiting for the Messiah and said, you know what, we will pick up this task. We're going to go to the land of Israel. We're going to settle the land of Israel. You know, when Herzl wrote that book in one night, Das Judenstadt, The Jewish State, he got up the next morning and made the most arrogant and most accurate prophetic prediction in all of Jewish history when he said, today I gave birth to the Jewish state. That was 1897. How many years later is 1948? Wow, that was really something. Theodore Herzl was a journalist turned activist and is often called the father of modern Zionism, though other Zionist movements preceded his in the 19th century. He wrote Der Judenstaat in 1895, at a time when anti-Semitism was surging in France, and he was bearing witness to it as a journalist. Throughout the 19th century, Judaism in Europe was going through a process of reformation and rediscovery. In Germany, for instance, a reform movement saw the future of the Jewish people not in the restoration of Jerusalem, but in assimilation. They revised their prayer books to that end, removing prayers anticipating the return to the promised land or the coming of a literal messiah. Herzl was a fascinating figure in the midst of all this. I think people are a little bit confused about this because there's very little in the Zionist movement that is secular in, in the Western liberal sense of the term. This is Yoram Hazoni, an Israeli philosopher who's written about politics, nationalism, and the Hebrew Bible. If you read the the great early leaders of the Zionist movement, sure, they're distant from personal Orthodox observance, but they're anti-liberals. And this is very important to understand, is that they, they're reacting against liberalism. Liberalism was the theory that said, um, in Germany or in France, the Jews can simply be equal. Everyone can be equal. And Herzl is you know, famous for writing, it was a mistake to think that people could be made equal simply by announcing it in, an, in, in the Imperial Gazette. 
you know, it, you, you can't decide that, that the entire, you know, thousands of years of Jewish history or of Christian history, you know, simply dissolves at the snap of a finger because you've decided that people are equal. And the, the Zionists, including those who were not personally observant, they were turning to a biblical inheritance which belonged to, and still to this day, it belongs to all Jews. Now, there are many Jews who turn their back on it, but the Zionists were, they were people saying, the only way to redeem our people, and when they, they, they're talking about redemption, they're also talking about personal redemption. How can you, how can you be a person who's, who's not internally torn you know, by, by all sorts of pressures to conform to a society that in fact doesn't want you there? or d doesn't appreciate you. And um, their writings focus on the, the claim, which I, I agree with, that the Jews can be whole again um, when they live on their own land, when they serve in their own army, where they, they, they fight to defend their own children mm. instead of depending on others. As I said, Herzl's movement wasn't the first, and it wasn't the last. There were a variety of Zionist movements that emerged in the 19th and early 20th century. There was political Zionism of Herzl to establish political and economic independence. There was religious Zionism. There was socialist Zionism. There was... Was it like the Kibbutzim? Yeah. Yep. There was... A revisionist Zionism of Jabotinsky, which held you couldn't have a Jewish state without all of the biblical borders. These various Zionist visions are alive in different corners of the state of Israel today, including Neveh, the Meshav where Zion Lashem and his community are planting and raising families. Um, we believe, in, and this is what the Torah teaches us, that, that the, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel and construction of the state of Israel and the fact that the state of Israel is a strong and, and, and getting stronger and growing, and that the, at the end of the day, the whole Jewish people will be coming here, turning the land into, into uh, uh, something that's, that's, you know, that's giving fruit and giving produce. And together with our, our Torah studies and our, our communal, you know, our religious communal life, um, that's our mission. Mm -hmm. And you know, everyone has his little, his, his little part, little, smaller or bigger, whatever. Everyone does what, what they can. We, uh, we feel that we're part of, of something much bigger. Mm -hmm. And in this, this specific event, as horrific as it, as it has been, and maybe will be, we don't know what's coming tomorrow, yeah. um, doesn't change anything. Part of the reason it's worth drawing out these distinctions and these motivations is that they speak directly to one of the tensions in the Israel-Palestine conflict. That tension comes from the idea that Israel is a colonial project, like that of India or South Africa or Algeria. In each of these cases, European settlers came, displaced the native people, established a society, and maintained it in order to either project power abroad for the empire or to exploit the people and resources of the land. But Zionism, whether it was political or religious, was about being Jewish, not in service of an empire. Some of the earliest Zionists were escaping Russian pogroms. Herzl's Zionism was a response to anti-Semitism in France. Here's former Ambassador Michael Oren again. And I should, I, you know, I should really add, Michael, about the whole colonial, the modern colonial things. What is a colonial enterprise? Colonial people are people who are sent 
by a mother country to, say, conquer a country, to settle a country so that they can then, you know, enrich the mother country. Uh, but that was certainly never the case of the, of the Zionist movement. We were sent here by the British, right? and uh, we ended up fighting the British for our liberation. We were an anti-colonialist. To put it another way, to understand the Jewish people's claim on the land of Israel, one must understand how it predates not just 1948, or the British Empire, or the Ottomans, or even the Romans. Rather, the motivation the Jewish people have to call this land their home goes to the very heart of Jewish identity. Any group of Jews who separated themselves from the land of Israel left the Jewish people. The Church of James is an example of that when the temple was destroyed. They headed to Pella in present-day Jordan. Um, the uh, Jewish section of the Communist Party in the 1920s in the Soviet Union renounced the attachment to the land. Today's contemporary anti-Semitic organization, Jewish Voices for Peace, separated itself from the land. Why do we have a land? The answer is really very simple. If you go back to the Torah, 70 nations come out of, of the three children of Noah after the flood. Each one is assigned a land, and the last one to get a piece of land is a fellow by the name of Avraham and his wife Sarah. But why does, why does monotheism, a religion, need a land? The answer is very simple. Judaism and its mitzvot commandments is about the sanctity of normalcy. What does the sanctity of normalcy mean? We are here in this world to maintain God's harmony of creation as it was when the sun set on the sixth day of creation right before the first Shabbat. You do that through a life of justice, righteousness, holiness, and purity. If you want to be a light to the nations, you have to function like a nation. And therefore, we need a land to live a normal life like any other nation, but to live it according to God's commandments. Many who analyzed the 1948 Arab-Israeli War used the word miraculous. Victory for the Israelis was hardly something they could be assured of. They had no air force, very little in the way of artillery, and only three tanks. And yet, this army made of refugees, Holocaust survivors, and World War II veterans, managed to repel an invading force of four armies with more than 200 tanks and 300 aircraft. As remarkable as it was, it would pale in comparison to another victory that came two decades later. That story, right after this. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection a few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, 
Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. In May 1967, Egypt's President Gamal Abdel Nasser had been escalating hostilities with the Israelis, cutting off crucial shipping passageways to Israeli vessels, and signaling an imminent war by ordering UN peacekeeping officials out of the Sinai Peninsula. In a shock to the world, Israel struck first. On June 5, 1967, the Israeli Air Force essentially wiped out the Egyptian Air Force while it was still on the runways in Egypt, and it began a brutal assault on Egyptian forces that had taken up positions in the Sinai Desert. In spite of the clear strategic lopsidedness, Nasser continued to broadcast on the radio false reports of his forces' advance on Israel. And these provoked Jordan, Israel's neighbor to the east, and the occupant of the West Bank and East Jerusalem, to attack Israel as well. Here again, the Israelis proved far more determined and formidable than the Jordanians expected. Not only did they repel the attack, but they quickly advanced into East Jerusalem. The audio you're hearing now is a live radio broadcast from June 7th, from a reporter that was embedded with Israel's paratroopers as they advanced through the old city of Jerusalem and towards the western wall of the Temple Mount. In short order, the paratroopers capture the old city in the Temple Mount, and the soldiers gather in front of the Western Wall, weeping, shouting, and blowing on the shofar. A little later, they all sing Hatikva together, the Israeli national anthem. A rough translation is, as long as within our hearts the Jewish soul sings, as long as forward to the east to Zion looks the eye, our hope is not yet lost. It is 2,000 years old. To be a free people in our land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. There's a photo of these paratroopers that's one of the most iconic images of modern-day Israel. It serves as both the cover and the inspiration for Yossi Klein-Halevi's book, Like Dreamers, which tells the story of these paratroopers before and after 1967. What's so extraordinary about this image is that you see the soldiers looking up at the wall. And again, just for the context, uh, the wall was in fact off-limits for Jewish prayer for 19 years. And so the soldiers come to the wall, they liberate the wall in the morning of, of, of June 7th. And the photographer caught this extraordinary moment where these exhausted soldiers are looking up in awe. And you see them turning from soldiers into pilgrims. At the end of a very long journey, when I look at that picture, I think that these are soldiers who are the pilgrims at the end of 2,000 years of Jewish exile. And for the Jews to be 
sovereign again at the Western Wall, which was, which was the symbol of our defeat. And suddenly it becomes the place of restoration, the restoration of God's promise to the Jewish people. And that's what you felt. The most secular Jew on the morning of June 7th felt the spiritual uplift that, that he probably couldn't even name. But I saw it happen with my father, who was a Holocaust survivor, and after the Holocaust had left religion. He had come from a religious family. The way he put it to me was, God doesn't deserve my prayers. You know, it's a very Jewish kind of rebellion uh, against religion. It's not that I don't believe in God. I do believe in God, which is why I'm not going to pray to him, because God could have stopped it. And the morning of the paratroopers returning to the wall is the moment where my father felt, okay, I can forgive God now. And he became a deeply religious Jew after that. And what happened to him, I think, was really in some ways emblematic of what happened to the Jewish world in general. There's another famous recording from that day, capturing a transmission from Motagur, the commander of the paratroopers on the ground in the old city. He's saying the Temple Mount is ours. By this, he includes not just the Western Wall, but also the complex above it, known to the Muslim world as Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. Moments later, the brigade's chief communications officer, Ezra Oren, climbed to the top of the Dome of the Rock and fastened an Israeli flag to the pole at the top. It didn't last long. Moshe Dayan, the defense minister, spotted the flag from his position on top of nearby Mount Scopus. He radioed Motagur and asked, do you want to set the Middle East on fire? The flag was quickly taken down. Just two weeks after the war ended, in a move that was stunning and, for some Jews, almost unthinkable, control of the Al-Aqsa complex was returned to Muslim hands. Moshe Dayan, who was the defense minister, met with the officials of the Waqf, the Muslim Trust, who were in charge of, of the mount, and essentially handed them back the keys and, and gave them veto power over who has the right to pray uh, on the mount. Now, this to me is actually the second most extraordinary moment in Israel's history after, after the, the paratroopers reaching the wall. Because um, the holiest site for Judaism is actually not the Western Wall. The holiest place is the mount. That's where the temple stood. That's where Jews believe the future temple will stand in messianic times, whatever, whatever the future temple will be. And when we pray, wherever Jews are around the world, we pray facing the mount. And that's very much in the consciousness of Jewish devotion. And so to return, not just to the wall, but to the mount, and then give it back, is to my mind something really unprecedented. Now, Israel didn't do it for altruistic reasons. It did it because it wanted to minimize the, the, the religious intensity of the conflict. It did not want a Muslim-Jewish war over holy places. But still, it was this tremendous act of spiritual contraction 
And again, there's there's no example of this, of, of a of a conquering army retaking its holiest place and then giving it back to the to the religion that I don't want to say took it from us. They didn't take it from us. They actually took it from the Byzantines. But from a, 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 a kind of an emotional Jewish point of view, we're taking it back from those who took it from us. And then, and there, there are Israelis to this day who will not forgive Moshe Dayan for that. I'm not one of them. I think that that was a, a great moment of, of Israeli wisdom for which we never got the credit. That's the thing that really eats at me, is that when Israel does something that unprecedented, that really that no conquering army ever did, uh, it's passed over in silence. And it's, and it's taken as, as self-evident. There was nothing self-evident about that moment. We'll talk more about the status quo at the Wall and Al-Aqsa Mosque in a future episode, including my conversation with a member of the Waqf, the group of Muslim clerics that oversee the Al-Aqsa complex. But for now, I want to highlight Yossi's sentiment here about the way Israel's actions are interpreted or taken for granted by the global community. This is something I heard a lot from Israelis. The Six-Day War utterly transformed the world's perceptions of them. When the shooting stopped, they had not only taken East Jerusalem, they had taken the West Bank, Gaza, and the Sinai Peninsula. Now, consider that in contrast to the story of the Jewish people through the 20th century. Fleeing pogroms in Eastern Europe and Russia, nearly being annihilated altogether in the Holocaust, and then, almost miraculously, founding the State of Israel and winning the Arab-Israeli War in 1948. After the founding, Israel became a refuge for Jews who were expelled from Egypt, Morocco, Iraq, Lebanon, and Iran, among others. Jews whose roots in those countries went back centuries. More than 600,000 refugees came shortly after 1948 and settled in Israel. And Jewish refugees from around the world continue to emigrate into Israel to this day. But for much of the world, it not only cemented Israel as a modern military power, it fundamentally changed the way they understood the Israeli story. Here's former Ambassador Michael Oren again. Israel wins the 67 war, you know, in the 60s, right? Uh, the Six-Day War, at a, precisely at the time where and being a, a military victor is no longer cool. Uh, our timing wasn't great. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. The Jews could have never recovered from the Holocaust to the extent that we did, where we're now perceived the problem of the Jews is not that we're this powerless, pathetic people, but that we have too much power. We would have never, and, and this happened, we're talking about in eight, 80 years since the Holocaust, this extraordinary transformation of the Jewish people from the lowest point in our history to what I regard as the peak point in our history. And so there's something that is contradictory about the Jewish contemporary experience and the progressive mindset. We rejected victimhood, which is to say that we rejected the basis of progressive thinking. And I think there's a tremendous amount of rage among progressives at the Jews for refusing to play the role of victim after the Holocaust. We could have been the world's most beautiful victims, the perfect victims, but we chose to step out of that role. 
Now, I, I, I have lots of criticism about Israeli policies. I believe that Israel needs to be much more proactive on putting a credible peace offer on the table. Uh, at the same time, I'm very mindful of the fact that there is no national movement that I can think of that has rejected offers of statehood more often than the Palestinian national movement because the offers are never good enough. Uh, and I'm also mindful of the fact that no other nation went from experiencing a near total destruction to, to entering into a permanent state of war. And to judge Israel, to take us out of that context, and to judge us as if this was all on us, is to my mind the final act in this history of, of, of a thousands of years of assault on the Jewish people. Now again, it's more complicated now because we have power. And we're not victims. And there are Palestinian dead children. But to judge Israel without the context of this story is, to my mind, in some ways, the greatest offense that we've experienced. And I'm not saying it rhetorically, because now the world knows the consequences of turning the Jews into the Jew, into the symbol of evil. And when you turn Israel and Zionism into the symbol of evil, you are playing out a very old pattern. But now the world knows the consequences of doing that. And for this to happen after the Holocaust, that's, that's where I draw the line. The consequences he's referring to are the events of October 7th. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on and on and on and on and on. And this is not ending. And we hear the, the explosions and the rockets. We, we see them. We hear them. Something different. We have no idea what's going on. So we all, you know, hit the sheltered rooms, waiting for instructions. Okay, electricity goes out, phone service is out. Very un unusual. Security team is rushing the roads. Maybe two hours in, two, two, three hours in, we start getting, we start getting rumors of, of things that are happening. We hear the, we hear the battles. So the terrorists didn't hit our, our town. They were on the way. We know today they were on the way. They didn't make it. They were tackled pre-reaching our town. But our neighbor towns were, some of them were attacked. We see the helicopters fighting, we hear them. By noon, we start receiving injuries and casualties into our town. Now we're in the southern corner of the Gaza surrounding towns. So why in the world would, would there be ambulances with, with injuries coming to us? We don't have a medical center. We're not on the way to anyone, to anything, to any hospital or anything. And we understand that the roads are shut, right? If you hit the road, you're dead. Terrorists took over all the roads. Hundreds of people were killed on the road. So we get we get injuries and casualties. We're, we're kind of trying to take care of them, right? People severely injured, friends, friends, neighbors from our from neighbor towns. We know them. They start telling us the stories of what's going on in those kibbutzim, moshavim, neighboring towns that were attacked. And this is going on all day. And so we have our security team like rushing here, rush, running around and making sure everyone's locked in their houses. No one's walking around. Very small security team, very not 
you know, not trained well enough. Probably most of them can't run for more than 30 seconds without fainting, you know? And till the evening, we didn't even see any army forces because they were busy doing other stuff, <laughs> you know, more important apparently. And, and you were cut off. But And you were cut off. You were cut off. So this is going on for about two days. So while we're taking care of injuries, the helicopters are coming into our town to take them to the hospital. In and out, in and out. My, actually, my brother-in-law is a helicopter uh, pilot. He, he was there. And this is, this is kind of the first day. Here's Lauren Clemensburg again. They brought in wounded and they didn't have tourniquets. Have you seen how a Torah scroll is in like a arc, right? And it's really, really, really important, the drape of the ark. So if you've, you've seen a Torah ark, so the, they take a lot of time. It's like hand-sewn, it's like big money. And, uh, and they didn't have tourniquets. So they laid the, the drape of the ark on the floor, they cut it into shreds, and they tied it. And they made, were making tourniquets out of the ark. I mean, nothing is more important than saving lives, so, so the, but it's like heartbreaking. So I, you know, I was I helped take care of, of good friends of mine from a neighboring town where had a grenade shot at them or, or, or bullet, uh, bullet uh, you know, uh, injuries. And, um, right, so day and night, 24, 24 hours, we're on, all, all around the clock, just patrolling and running around, uh, trying to figure out where they're going to come from, right? Like literally waiting for them to come. They didn't come. Thank God they didn't come. And uh, that was Saturday, right? Monday afternoon, uh, eventually the army said, okay, we, we feel safe enough to protect your evacuation. Get out of here right now. Walking around that hotel and talking with Zion, the sense of trauma was palpable. This community, having seen what they'd seen, had been cut off, caring for the injured, and waiting for that violence to come to their front doorsteps. It was hard for me to imagine how they were ever going to go back, but it wasn't hard for Zion. You know, we're not giving in. We're not breaking down. We're not falling apart. We're not falling apart. We're not. And, um, and our job, our mission, is taking this community and making it 100 times bigger and 100 times stronger. And, and that's going to happen. It's not like that's not part of the plan. We're not falling apart. We're going to go through this. We're going to be stronger. We're, you know, we're, we're farmers, right? Farmers are connected to the land. You know, we don't have the privilege of saying, okay, let's, let's just give it up and we're, we're gone. It ain't happened. That is the essence of the Zionist story. A sense that as a people, they belong to the land and that the land belongs to them. On our next episode, we head to East Jerusalem and the West Bank to hear another story altogether. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by Mike Cosper. Our associate producer was Michael Winters. Additional production by Matt Stevens and Clarissa Mall. Music by Dan Phelps, with additional music by David Lachance. Our theme song is by Sandra McCracken. This episode was mixed by Mike Cosper. Our graphic design is by Brian Todd. 
Social media by Nicole Shanks. Russell Moore is our editor-in-chief. 